This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tervish. And we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern and have a couple of replays throughout the week. Technology buzzwords such as the Internet of Things, digitization, artificial intelligence or robotics have moved from R&D labs to boardrooms and government agencies alike. There exists wide agreement that these technologies will fundamentally change the way that we work. But how will our work of tomorrow look like? The purpose of this show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. We want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, in each show, we will talk with leaders from a specific industry and get their insight on what is happening today and how things are changing for the future. This gets us to the topic of today. Now, everybody talks about the knowledge economy, but uh, to state the obvious, before we have knowledge, we have to learn something, and how learning itself is happening is going through a radical transformation. So today's topic is learning, education, and the acquisition of professional skills. To help us explore this topic, I have two wonderful guests, uh, Stephen Lester, who is the Chief Digital Officer at McGraw-Hill Education. And in the second half of the show, we'll talk to Jennifer Neumeyer, who is an Enterprise Sales Manager of Learning Solutions at LinkedIn. I also am happy to welcome here in the studio my friend, colleague, and co-author, Dr. Nikolai Zigokov, who is a renowned expert of competitive strategy and the management of innovation. Uh, Stephen, uh, welcome to you first. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Great to reconnect. Uh, now, with operations management and matching supply with demand, I've written two books that were published with you guys, but books, it I, seems, are the, the new horse cards, so to say, and you're now selling digital learning experiences. Tell us what you guys, in terms of products and services, what are you providing these days? Sure. And, you know, what we're providing today really builds on the, the fundamental focus that we've had since the beginning of McGraw-Hill which is really playing an important role in helping students and professors build learning communities such that each can reach its full potential. Today, we've got such wonderful opportunities with digital technologies and algorithms that we're able to help the student take more control of their learning experience and of their learning efforts, and we're able to give greater insights back to professors and teachers of all grade levels to better understand uh, their cohort of students and to help shape how they spend their time together. So in well over 1,400 course areas, we've taken the best of pedagogical design, the best of machine learning, and the best of curation to provide just-in-time learning opportunities that allow the student to progress at their own capability and at their own rate. So uh, just imagine there's a 15-year-old Christian uh, from Germany who is struggling in his chemistry class. Uh, how, how does that 15-year-old Christian learn now differently compared to his dad who took uh, a German chemistry class 30 years ago? Sure. So his dad probably had a very fixed syllabi and probably came home every night and did some number of very uh, analog, flat homework assignments. And... If was smart and if the uh, chemistry came to him naturally, succeeded. But if uh, his dad thought a little bit differently, odds are at times he would get frustrated with no feedback. Fast forward to today when the student comes home or is in transit or is in a break during the day and they go to open up their web browser and explore some areas of chemistry that they need to master, Number one, the software can tell them their areas of opportunity and can focus them on where to spend their time. The software understands that because of past engagement, both time on task, both in terms of how the student has answered probes for understanding and in terms of other inputs that the student might have done in homework. Uh, so number one is that the student is spending time in the areas where they need to make progress to be ready to move on to the next area of mastery. Uh, secondarily, as the students engaging with that homework, we're able to pass back information to the teacher so that when the class is reconvened, the teacher understands both at an individual student level and at a class level where to focus and where to spend that instructional time to make sure as individuals and as a learning community, the group is moving forward. 
So by the end of the semester, the class will have mastered what the definition of the course is, but each student will have spent different amounts of time on different topics and may have moved from topic to topic in different pathways based on their ability to uh, take each learning objective, understand it, practice it, and then move on to the next learning objective. Now, so in, this, a, in, this use case, in this use case that you were just walking me through, uh, which is dramatically, I can tell you only, dramatically better than any chemistry education that I ever got. <laughs> um, but the, the way you described it, uh, Stephen, the, the trigger was still with a student in a way that the student has, is, is taking initiative and, and logs into a web browser. Um, is there something also a little bit more, so shall we say, parental, where uh, the, the the phone starts vibrating and say, like, Christian, it looks like you're still struggling in your chemistry assignment? Or is, is there a little bit more nudging from the side of uh, the either the educator or McRoyal that takes the trigger event or the initiative? So there's nudging in several ways. And certainly in the lower grades, uh, parent as partner in the learning process uh, is an important role, and this information is exposed to the parent. As we start moving into the high school grades and into college, uh, just based on societal norms, having the parent sitting in the middle there is, is less appropriate. But the student is nudged in several ways. Uh, number one, the feedback loop to instructor can help the instructor place a different emphasis on the importance of a given homework assignment. And we know that students are highly motivated, quite frankly, to do the work that the teacher says matters. And so we can shift up the, the importance of the work. Number two, just when the student logs on, we're telling the student, hey, if you spend your time in this area, you will be successful. And we're able to incorporate rewards and uh, badging as part of that to create positive reinforcement. Number three, we do this both in the browser and on, on the phone. So when the student is, say, commuting or in between times and the student goes to the phone, we're going to put the high-value work in front of them, which is going to really drive confidence. Confidence drives engagement. So we actually take all three approaches where appropriate uh, to drive engagement. Hi, Stephen. It's Nikolai. Good to hear you again. Um, just wanted to pick up one thing you just mentioned, and that was uh, as you see how the student is doing, you can maybe help the instructor think about changing maybe the textbook or changing the assignment questions. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, not now Christian as the uh, student, but Christian as the author of the books? Uh, what sure. kind of feedback do you provide back to the authors in trying to help them with their books? Yeah, so it's quite, it's quite powerful. We know we live in a blended world, meaning we live in a world of books and we live in a world of digitally powered learning. Um, certainly to your point, in the old analog world where the book was published and then maybe not touched for three to five years, any defects or errors or omissions in that book were simply a part of it. As we think about reimagining learning through technology today, it's the complete opposite. In our product that we call SmartBook, which is a combination of long-form reading and just-in-time probing in an adaptive environment, what we're able to do in real time is see which of the instructional materials students are struggling with. If a, a meaningful, statistically significant number of students begin to struggle with an instructional area, we have an entire technology-based workflow engine that will reroute that back to the author and editor who are responsible for it, and we'll ask them to re-examine it. Now, part of this is because when it was first created, there's an expectation of difficulty, an expectation of time on task, an expectation of success rate for a piece of curriculum. And then we're able to measure outcomes versus anticipated outcomes and start to look at deltas. And then as a last step, we create the opportunity for students to suggest that an area of curriculum could be better. And we're able to take both quantitative and qualitative recommendations in the area of curriculum route them back to author and editor. And then, of course, we're able to make the updates uh, in a flowing or near real-time basis, depending. So there are really three feedback loops, right? Then there's a feedback loop to me as a learner. There's a yeah. feedback loop to the author. 
Uh, and it's somewhere in the middle is a feedback loop to the teacher, right, who is in charge of uh, overseeing a good number of learners, but then there are many teachers who are kind of falling under the editor or the author. That's right, and it's the overlay of these three feedback loops that makes the authentic use of technology powerful for teaching and learning. If you focus on any one, you can make some level of improvement. If you weave the three together, you really transform um, how learning is happening, and you're really creating opportunities for greater social engagement in the learning community. And so what the technology does nicely is it scaffolds up our basic understanding the technology helps to improve the quality of learning experience, and all of that is creating time to take that knowledge and to apply it in learning communities to drive transformation of knowledge. But with all this technology, the student is still taking the exam themselves, right? I mean, in some sense, uh, there is this last piece of, piece of learning, especially in the more professional pieces, but certainly also all the way down to elementary and middle and high school, is some form of certification and grading. How has that changed? Yeah, so let's unpack that for a minute. So grading is a feedback loop. And, you know, when we were in college, or at least when I was in college, I was lucky if I, the, the most attentive faculty, and in high school, you know, maybe I got my homework back once a week, and maybe I got a midterm grade, and maybe I got a final grade. And that was considered grading. Grading as a feedback loop in the environment that McGraw-Hill offers today happens every day. So number one, the student is getting many more data points about success and about where to spend their time. Grading as a definition of mastery so that I'm now certified that I know this course in chemistry can also happen through traditional assessment, but in more innovative curriculums is also happening through practice and application. So when you increase the amount of feedback coming in the course of practice, which we do, you create the opportunity for the ultimate certification to be in the form of application. Application could be a project. Application could be team-based work. And, of course, where appropriate, application can still be a summative test. That's really up to the pedagogy and design of the program as driven by the faculty. But what we do is we unlock the opportunities for more creative ways of learn of defining what mastery is. Great. Stephen, could you tell us a little bit more about sort of the technologies behind all of this? Uh, and part of the interesting question is, you know, why now, right? Why not 10 years ago? Um, now, sure. obviously, partly it's sort of, you know, everyone is connected, but it would be interesting to hear kind of a little bit from your side, what, what are the sort of technology investments that you've engaged in? Yeah, and interesting enough, some of these theories that are now, you know, we're doing this at scale with many millions of learners, some of this research dates back to 20 and 25 years ago. It's sort of the core foundational research about how you can harness the power of the machine to help manage learning. The reason is why now is the ecosystem has come together. At a very high level, if you think about what it takes to do this well, number one is you need to be able to define for any particular course or domain a knowledge map. So, for example, in Algebra 1, this knowledge map may have 420 points of learning that the student has to master. You then have to be able to express these points of learning with dynamic relationships to each other because a student is going to move through a map in their own way based on their own learning abilities and their own prior knowledge. And so you have to be able to express this in, as a machine-readable structure and then to use it, you need to apply multiple algorithms on it to start to surface the recommendations of what is the student ready to take on next. And then, of course, you need meaningful digital content to engage the student with so that you capture their attention and imagination and really help them uh, learn and practice. It takes that whole system well-designed in order to deliver these experiences. Why this is so uh, promising now is that the state of the art of technology is such that we can do this in an efficient and effective way. And people's comfort with technology has gotten to the point where the tools people are using are somewhat second nature. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with uh, Stephen Laster, who is Chief Digital Officer at McGraw-Hill Education. 
We're talking about uh, digital learning tools, smart books, and other ways that have kind of moved to good old paper books to a digital learning experiences. Since the uh, show is really about the future of work now, let's talk about authors and, and teachers and all of that. Uh, maybe let's start with the teachers. Um, so we're making the learning process more efficient, and I, I guess everybody, certainly ops people like me, love efficiency. So with better efficiency, we have now the choice of either get to better learning or consume less resources. Now, in any educational setting that I've ever worked in, there's a certain pressure on resources. Um, how do you see these new technologies play out? Do you, do you see them used primarily to boost more learning, better learning outcomes? Or do you also see a certain pressure from school districts or universities to just start changing faculty to student ratio, Stephen? So I think there's three uh, positive outcomes. Number one is I think we drive access to high-quality learning. Um, being able to do this at a distance with technology allows learners to engage that otherwise would have been geographically uh, locked out. Number two is I think we allow our teachers and our faculty to really focus on where they create the most value, which is to be role models, which is to be mentors, which is, which is to be guides to um, our learners, to really get them excited and to really help them spend more of their time on taking base knowledge and driving it towards application and transformation. Um, we do all of this work with a deep understanding that in every learning community, there needs to be a, a faculty member or a leader or a guide um, if we're really going to have an impactful learning experience. And then number three, this allows us to build bridges uh, to create learning communities that, frankly, 20 years ago weren't imaginable. Uh, so the fact that, you know, if you think of uh, Introduction to Computer Science course, where you can have teams of students from around the world working together solving problems, um, that becomes pretty powerful. If you think about a community college who, frankly, has to build less physical in infrastructure um, and is able to more serve more students um, because some of the learning is happening off the physical campus, that drives access. And there's a certain amount of efficiency that's also created because if you think about one of our greatest problems, and that is the amount of remediation and rework that is required by students, some in high school, students trans in the transformation from high school to college, to the extent that we can help that uh, core learning into them and make them more successful as they move through their learning pathways. We know there's a tremendous cost savings, but there's also a tremendous economic benefit because we know that students who complete their educational programs uh, perform much better over the course of the life of their professional lives. So you are many bad. So you make the process better, and I, I guess uh, nothing is uh, to be criticized about better. I'm just trying to put myself into the shoes and my, the story of my life. So uh, it's not really the 15-year-old Christian struggling with chemistry, but it is a 50-year-old Christian grumpy professor here at the university, has taught operations management for 20 years in a certain way. There is a certain change in the way that I would have to organize my classes if I would fully embrace the smart book or, or the digital technology. How, how does that change look like for a teacher or a, a faculty member like me? Yeah, the change, I think, is an engaging change. Um, you know, as one who um, taught at Babson College for seven years, you know, I understand what it's like to prep and, I, and what it is to manage a schedule. On the other hand, armed with the kind of dashboard that we that this provides you with your students it allows you to reimagine your classroom to be a much more action and participant centered classroom whether that's an online or an on-campus classroom it really puts you as that mentor as that person who's driving those the students to their edge of uncomfortableness but doing that in a way armed with an understanding of where that moment is and what they've already mastered. It allows you to walk in every day with a deeper understanding of the concepts that they're struggling with as individuals or as an entire class, and it allows you to really drive their success. Um, is it a change? Sure. Is it a change that makes teaching more enjoyable and more engaging? 
we've heard time and time again that it does. And it's a change that makes your students more successful. But isn't at the end of the day, there is, and I'm not an economist, but let me pretend to be one for the moment, that <laughs> the, the, you, you, you generate value. I mean, the value that you bring through that technology, the increased connectivity is, is very real, right? No more rework, customized learning. I think that part is all good. Scale economies in production and teaching. Um, mm -hmm. So the question is like, who, in whose pockets does the value that we generated end up, right? So one plausible story is it ends up with a student. The student just does mm -hmm. better. The next plausible story, it ends up in the teacher's pocket in the sense that the teacher just has a m nicer job and doesn't have to worry about taking care of kind of that grumpy student because, again, better technology has taken care of that. It could mm -hmm. end up in the pockets of the principal because mm -hmm. the principal now says, like, well, I need fewer faculty, or it ends up in the pockets of, of McGraw-Hill, right? And, and so, so I, again, I don't know in any way want to be uh, all, all, every innovation, every innovation creates value. And then the question of who extracts the value is, I think, at the, you know, one of the fundamental questions. How do you think this is going to play out? Sure, it's a great question. For McGraw-Hill, the reason to do this was a reason of remaining true to our mission and remaining relevant it would have been far easier to stay in an analog world. In fact, this has been a five-year transformation of the company where we've invested many hundreds of millions of dollars to reimagine how to meet our students and our faculty. Um, it's a place where on a per-student basis, the cost to the student of doing this is far cheaper. And it's a place where for us, it's a more, far more complex product to offer, but it's one that, again, is, is much closer to our mission in today's times. The piece of value that you failed to mention is also the value to the institution. It's one of the greatest benefits here is it allows students to complete. And I think as we look at measuring, be it K-12 or higher ed, if the focus on, as the focus on student outcomes continues to be central, this is an important tool in a pedagogical toolbox. And we think that's the real driver of the value here, the fact that we can help students really be confident learners and, again, in, with supportive and well-trained faculty, uh, we can help drive completion rates. So to your point, the value is spread in many pockets. Um, but to me, the most exciting part of this is seeing retention and completion rates as students go up as a result of this. Great, Stephen. Now, I'm, I'm wearing the strategy hat. Uh, Christian is always wearing the operations hat or most of the time. Sure. Um, so that, that kind of brings up the question of, uh, you know, your company and how are we going to differentiate ourselves in the space, of course, that has opened up so many new entrants, right? It is not other uh, textbook publishers that you're now competing against, but it's, uh, you know, everyone on YouTube, uh, right? So is this helping? Is this hurting? Kind of what, what, what's your stance on that? Our stance is this is very interesting. So I have a different role uh, with Bastion College in the forefront of online learning, high-quality online learning in the late 90s and early 2000s. At that point, the biggest obstacle to online learning was the question is, is it as good as the classroom? And fortunately, that question, I think, has been answered. To the extent that there are many players in ed tech and that the tooling of ed tech becomes second nature uh, both in K-12 and higher ed, it starts to create an accepted and, and vibrant set of patterns. Um, and that's really why uh, we compete in everything that we build based on open technology standards. There's a not-for-profit called IMS Global that sets the technology interoperability standards for ed tech, and we implement them, and we implement them with confidence. This is not about competing on the basis of software alone. This is about competing on a deep understanding of how people learn, on a deep understanding of instructional design and pedagogy, and of ability to bring all of that into smart technology-based solutions. We think because of our history, we know how to do that really well. We've spent the past five years building up a world-class engineering team that I believe is second to none. And so we're excited to have many players in the market because it grows the acceptance and the vibrancy of the market. And we don't think EdTech will ever be winner-take-all, and we're quite happy to play a meaningful role in a large market full of many vibrant players. 
In case you're just tuning in, you are, we are talking to Stephen Lester about the future of uh, online learning, education, and textbook publishing. And the topic right now is like uh, who is generating the value and who is capturing the value. Uh, and my colleague here, Nikolai Sigurkov, as an expert in competitive strategy, is looking a little bit more into that with the next questions. Yeah, <clears throat> Stephen, thanks. The, we, we earlier talked about these feedback loops, right? We said there's a feedback loop to the student, there's a feedback loop to the teacher, there's a feedback loop to the author. Let's think about the feedback loop to you, McGraw Hill. Um, and uh, so it'd be kind of interesting to hear of how, again, the information that you are kind of gathering through all of these different platforms, through all of these different connections that you have with schools and with uh, learners, how does that shape kind of the kinds of products you are even offering or the kind of new products you, you want to uh, uh, kind of provide to the customers and learners? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And let's be very clear. The intimate um, feedback information that happens in the learning moment belongs to the student and is really uh, there for the student and teacher to use. And so we go to great lengths to safeguard that and to keep that in a very secure place. Uh, because we believe learning needs to be a place where students can take safe and smart risks to stretch themselves. We do a tremendous amount of work with classroom trials and focus groups, so deliberate moments in time where the participants understand that they're engaging with us for us to better understand product development. One of the strengths of our scale is we're able to do this uh, at scale in many different types of communities and types of grade levels. And so we, we work both with classroom trials and with focus groups deeply in shaping what the product of today and tomorrow needs to look like. We also obviously understand uptake. And so we can see uh, when certain uh, products that we're offering are getting more widely used or less widely used. And that shapes where we should then drive our inquiry and drive our innovation. And then lastly, because of the strength of our engineering organization, we do understand the state of the art of possibility with technology. And because of the strength of our academic organization, we're able to internally uh, imagine a world in teaching and learning that takes advantage of some forward-looking technologies. We'll rapidly prototype, we'll bring those into early uh, focus groups and trials, and we'll learn from that as well. So it's a three-tiered approach. Tell us about the transition when you went from book to digital, so to say. I would imagine with with books, even when you make the books themselves digital, there are boundaries where you say, like, well, this is within the boundary or the scope of that book or that service. Now, say I'm learning to become an investment banker. I'm taking a corporate finance course, but I mm -hmm. still need some basic calculus to deal with, you know, compounded interest rates or other things. Uh, so I'm crossing away from your corporate finance book now into another book that you also, as McCall, have written. Uh, is the learner, so to say, traveling seamlessly across your titles, or am I locked into a particular, locked in sounds so negative? Am I mostly playing within the scope of what traditionally was called a book? So that's a wonderful question, which is both a product development question, but more importantly, a faculty comfort question. So let me answer it from both viewpoints. In terms of how we're producing learning experiences today, the notion of the book fades away. So if you're sitting in your corporate finance course and there's an area of mathematics that you no longer understand, through the linkages we make in our curation, we're easily able to serve that up to you and allow you to practice uh, or learn for the first time if for some reason you missed it. We're also it's very easy for us to make learning experiences that have no notion of a book. So you're a nurse, you're a, a young finance person, you're in a tax consultancy, and there are just certain areas of learning uh, that are relevant for you, uh, easy enough assembled and delivered for you. And that, frankly, is a preferred pathway. Now, if we look at where many of our faculty are today, and I think you said it well before, as you teach on your campus, you have a custom and a style and a practice that you're used to. And in many cases, the semester-long course is closely associated to a book. In those cases, we want to make it easy for you to blend both the book metaphor and the digital and uh, component-based metaphor that we have. 
And so we also go to great lengths to index learning objects and to index digital experiences to follow the chapter and topic flow of well-known books so that we can bring today's faculty along into tomorrow's journey. And it's really up to you in course design as to how tightly you want to follow the paradigm of the book or whether you want to break away from it. And one of the strengths of McGraw-Hill is we have people who will work with you to help you do that course design and to help find your comfort level and to listen to your students' needs and sort of the culture of your, of your class and to come up with a design that works for you. Says Stephen Lester, Chief Digital Officer at McGraw-Hill Education. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us with these great insights. We need to take a short break now. When we come back out of the break, I will introduce our second guest for today, uh, Jennifer Neumeyer, Enterprise Sales Manager of Learning Solutions at LinkedIn, where she works with Cylinder.com. So we're going to stay in the scheme on topic of learning today. Uh, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tevish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio on Sirius XM. Now, we've been talking today about the future of learning and skill acquisition. And in the first half, we had the pleasure of talking to Stephen Laster, Chief Digital Officer at McRoll Education. As we're moving to the second half, uh, it's my pleasure to now welcome uh, Jennifer Neumeyer, Enterprise Sales Manager of Learning Solutions at LinkedIn, where she works with Lynda.com, a company that really has kind of taken professional learning and skill acquisition to the next level. Uh, welcome, uh, Jennifer. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. So Lynda.com moved into online learning about uh, early kind of 2000s at, at the time when we here at universities thought we were innovative if we posted our slides online. Uh, tell us exactly kind of how you got involved in Lynda.com and kind of how that played out in the digital world for, for Lynda. Of course, of course. So uh, in terms of my background, I began my career actually in financial technology, uh, serving institutional clients on the buy side for Bloomberg Financial. And a lot of what I did uh, came down to staffing my teams with the right people and keeping them engaged. And with the talent that we were looking for specifically in our organization, it required very deep analytical skills. And we found that finding this talent was very, very expensive. Um, and one of the new businesses that we started um, it required a lot of hiring to be done outside of the firm and a lot of ongoing training. Um, and a lot of the training that we provided were for skills that were very customized and that we had to scale globally and didn't quite find the type of online learning tools that we needed uh, that were sufficient to grow our business. And so being very intrigued about the talent and learning space, when I was offered a position at LinkedIn to consult with our largest clients on hiring and retaining their talent, It seemed for me like a very natural fit. Plus, LinkedIn was a very good cultural fit. Um, I think that's something that people don't spend enough time on understanding when they make a career move, but that's for a whole other conversation. <laughs> but in terms of lynda.com, um, as you know, LinkedIn bought lynda.com a few years ago, and the history behind lynda is very, very interesting, and I'm not quite sure people really understand where it started and how where it is today. Um, lynda was started in 1995, as an online support tool for um, different types of classes. And Linda Weinman herself um, started teaching web design a very long time ago in 1985. And when she was looking for books to help her teach the courses that she needed, she couldn't find the resources, so she actually created a book herself. And um, it was so successful that she started teaching instructor-led courses on web design. And because she had so many students that were trying to fill her classrooms, um, she decided that it was time to really try and put these courses online. And a lot of that actually was in the transition, like of the dot-com era and after 9-11 hit, when a lot of organizations weren't sending their employees anywhere. Travel was expensive. And um, so in 2002, that's when Linda decided to put all of her courses actually online. So from taking it from a school-led, instructor-led effort, she then mm -hmm. took it online in 2002. So if I wanted to know now, I've, I've seen some amazing courses, including my my own domain, operations yeah. management. <laughs> if I wanted to make sure, though, the, let's move away from operations, but photography, you have some really cool courses in the design part on professional photography. So what is the typical journey of a customer going from, hmm, I might be interested in this, 
towards enrolling in your course, completing a course? What, what does the customer experience look like? So it's very interesting. We offer two different types of solutions for the individual members. So LinkedIn currently has over 530 million members on LinkedIn. And I should mention that LinkedIn, as I said, we bought lynda.com in May of 2015. Um, and it complements our offering quite well. I'll share with you why that is. But for the people that are looking to consume Linda, um, you can use the, your online membership. Um, you can pay a fee above and beyond using your free but, uh, internet, I'm sorry, your free access to LinkedIn to get access to all of Linda's tools. And what we also do is we also provide that to enterprise clients. So for anyone that has training needs above and beyond five or more people, an enterprise or an organization can actually consume lynda.com and feed that through their learning management system or LMS and distribute that more broadly across their organization. So we offer it for both business to business and business to consumer. And with that, you can find the type of courses that are interesting to you. It gives you access to the entire library. But the advantages of offering this from an enterprise perspective from an organizational level is then through the LMS, they can then track back what courses have been taken um, and tying very nicely into that with the acquisition by LinkedIn. There's a tremendous future that we have in terms of providing these courses and then coupling you know, where are your organization's skill sets? Where do we need to up-level our talent so that you can actually have courses recommended to the people that are sitting in seat so they can take those courses and either provide them with other opportunity within the organization or on an individual basis for people that are consuming it as a member, they can use that to find other job opportunities. Thanks, Jennifer. This is Nikolai uh, joining Christian today on his show. Um, can you help us understand a little bit of better how does Linda help me as a learner actually find the courses that I'd like? Um, mm -hmm. So you said, you know, we have all this big catalog. Now that's one thing to give me the 10,000 courses that you have available. And yeah. um, can you help us a little bit on that? Excellent. So let me actually share with you where Linda has been and where we're taking it through LinkedIn, through recommended course content. Because I'm sure as an individual consumer, it can be very overwhelming to go in and try and find the right courses that they need in order to find that next job opportunity or that next opportunity within their organization. So what we aim to do as an organization, LinkedIn overall, is to connect people with job opportunities. So with lynda.com, lynda.com aims to connect people with education about those jobs. So what we look at in terms of recommending that content is LinkedIn with having over 530 million members. We also have digital access to pretty much every organization uh, in the world. And with that, almost every job opportunity in the world. So because we can see what type of skill requirements are required for jobs and what organizations are looking for, based on looking at your individual profile, we can recommend certain content based on what you're doing now and what you may be looking at in order to up-level up, up your skills to find whatever it is, whatever the jobs are that you might be looking at. So we have individual courses and we have recommended playlists. So if you are looking to engage in learning a specific skill set, you can type in what that is and it would actually recommend the coursework that you would need to take in order to get that skill set. And then at the end of that, with LinkedIn, you actually get a certificate of completion and you can add that to your LinkedIn profile. And the nice thing about that is that is that for recruiters that may be looking for people that have individual skill sets or have completed specific course training, they can then search for that on LinkedIn using their recruiter tools and actually come to find you or the person that has those skill sets to recommend a job opening at their company. So this is fascinating. I, as, as somebody who kind of teaches the old way, so to say, I, <laughs> I, I, I think there are like three ways thereby that we can think about the learning process. There is the business school environment, which is take these courses and one day, uh, Christian, you will need these principles I'm teaching you right now. Then there is the more on-demand, which is like, oopsie, my, my boss told me to build a spreadsheet with that and that kind of valuation technology. I don't have a clue. I, I need a skill to be acquired quickly. And then there is like, I want to make a career maybe uh, in, 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 a, in a tech company or in a specific type of uh, uh, industry or maybe even region. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, what skills should I take? 
Um, so between the second and the third, the, the fixing a problem right now versus mm-hmm. the growing my career. So you see yourself more because of the partnership with LinkedIn as a career, long-term career grower as opposed to a firefighter support tool? Absolutely. I think what we look at is we look at how education, so LinkedIn looks at how education has changed over time. And if we look at the way universities are providing education, and um, University of Pennsylvania is near and dear to my heart as I am a student there now, um, the way education has changed is it really started with the Industrial Revolution and hasn't really changed in terms of how we deliver education since that time. So if we look at, for instance, how um, the type of requirements that an architect needs, what they were doing 20 years ago in terms of building out infrastructure is very different than the type of needs an architect has now. So in terms of building smart buildings and having a lot of other skill sets that are required to complete the journey of being an architect. So why I say that is that because the demands of education have changed so much, we look at this as a way to provide everyone in the global workforce with opportunity to find what that next opportunity, or with their, with a profile, to find that next opportunity to grow utilizing all the different types of learnings that we have available on LinkedIn, which is comprised of all the amazing content through lynda.com. So it really is changing the way people are looking in, in education in terms of filling a need now versus trying to figure out what those future skill gaps are. And I think where we sit in a unique position is we consult all, a lot of these large organizations in terms of we look at their financials. We say, okay, where are you growing? What are you doing? Where are you taking your organization? And what LinkedIn.com does on top of LinkedIn learning is it says, let's take a look at where your skill sets are as an organization and where you need to be two, five, ten years out and see where you need to grow to so we can help you recommend that comment, that content for the future opportunity or future of where you're looking to bring your organization. So it's really about bringing the workforce now into the future and managing through that skill gap, which we still don't know exactly what that skill gap is. But if we look historically and the way skills have been changing over time, our employees don't have the skills they need now to meet the demands of these organizations. So trying to figure out where they need to be in the future and, and, and mitigating that gap through enhancing skill sets now really positions companies quite well when they're looking at how they're performing versus their peers and also helps them in terms of you know, getting the right talent in place. Great, Jennifer. So that was really the right, the gap between uh, the skill set of the um, employee and you know the, the, the possible new opportunities that are out there. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how, how are you trying to close the gap between um, the content that you have on lynda.com and what is required, yeah. right? Because that is, in some sense, right, our challenge, right? We are seeing, look, yeah. uh, skills are evolving, i.e. Uh, capabilities are evolving, so we need to also adapt what we are teaching the students. And, and so how, how do you do this adaptation? So how we do it, and it's because we have all this data, so we've got an enormous amount of data, right, with all these members that are sitting behind the, the platform where we can do things that pretty much no one else can do is we see what jobs are being posted, um, what organizations are doing. Um, and we've got that breadth and depth of data across the world in terms of how needs are changing across different regions, what type of skills are required for these jobs. So to bridge that gap now, because we've got all of that rich content of looking globally across the global workforce and the global organizations, is, is by up-leveling the type of content that we have and keeping it very relevant and we release about 25 to 35 different courses per week, which is not a small feat. Um, so we're looking at trends over time because of the data that we have, and we're seeing how skills are changing, and those requirements for specific skills in certain jobs in certain regions across the globe are changing, and we're you know, making assessments based on the type of data that we have access to, which actually makes us really unique, right? In terms of looking at the different types of learning solutions out there, there's no one that has the access to all of this information to try and make these big bets on where those next skill gaps lie so that we can meet what those skill gaps are by um, improving our, our content. Uh, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and together with my colleague from the Mac Institute, Nikolai Zikakow, we have the pleasure of talking to Jennifer Neumeyer about the way that professional skills get acquired 
uh, on from the days of business school, so hopefully leaving a place for us too in this uh, ecosystem, to a world where learning happens uh, in real time and uh, proactively to very specific career ambitions and job opportunities that emerge. And lynda.com, uh, now LinkedIn, has done an amazing job merging kind of the educational part with the uh, kind of the career management part. Now, uh, how how does lynda.com or LinkedIn operate in terms of content development? At least initially, you were like a Coursera, like an edX. You were entirely a platform business, I understood, right? There's basically faculty and experts on the one side. There are learners on the other side. Do you yourself... Ho- have any faculty, or is it all basically uh, Uberized, to use a modern term? <laughs> Which is a new term. So um, we have our content is all led by industry experts. So where other content providers use people that may stand in as in an actor type of capacity, all of the people that have created their content are the ones that are delivering it on LinkedIn. So um, those are the types that we have relationships with all different folks that are either in the business space, the creative space, technology space, um, in terms of building out our library. And the people that actually are creating the content are the ones that are delivering it. And we have a studio on the West Coast where we have, it's a production studio where we film and create um, all of the content that we offer on LinkedIn, which is also different than a lot of other providers out there that we're not compiling it. Um, from other different sources. So because we're creating our own, it allows us to keep it very current um, and keep on top of that versus pulling it in from multiple different sources. Jennifer, when you mentioned earlier you were launching 25 to 35 courses a week, I, I, I just had to make sure I'm not gulping too loud here on the on, on air. Um, just give us kind of an idea of the scale of Linda. So how many mm-hmm. courses do you have and what is a course? And Sure, that's a very good question. So we have about 6,000 courses in English, and I'll talk about the other multiple languages that we support. What these courses are, are these are suggested coursework to engage in um, attaining a specific skill set. And these courses are made up of different classes within LinkedIn. Um, so we have, if we look at adding on some of the other multiple languages, it's nine to 12,000 different courses that we provide. Um, and with that, it's um, made up, as I said, of, of different types of courses. So if you're looking to improve your leadership skills in terms of um, what we offer in our business library, it would, for let's say managing through change, it would have a recommended course content, 15 or so different types of classes for you to complete to be able to be effective in the role of managing change as a leader. So... So I, I guess there are courses and classes. That's correct. <laughs> um, yes. And uh, so how many, again, I guess what a class is in our view is maybe different from yours. So what is a class in the, in the Linda so A class could be a couple world. of different things. Mm-hmm. It, could be, um, it could be a video tutorial. It could be a reading. And it's also something that um, as an organization, if you're rolling this out on an enterprise level, you can create your own custom coursework for the enterprise, so for your organization. So if you felt that... Um, for an, being an effective leader through managing change, it would require including many different types of classes within LinkedIn. Um, an organization can actually compile that and offer that out as a course. Uh, in terms of the actual number of specific classes that we have, I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head, but it is a compilation of all different types of um, readings and different classes that make up our 6,000 to 9,000 courses. And the 9,000 courses are in uh, multiple languages. So we include um, Japanese. One of the things that we're actually going to be adding in there is Mandarin and Brazilian Portuguese over the next year. So in terms of adding all of this coursework in, we have some really big demands in terms of having a more global because we really need the multi-language capabilities. So it's interesting to see on your videos that uh, they are super short. I remember when I put my ops course on Coursera a couple of years ago, Mm-hmm. Uh, people thought it was already impossible to move from a 90-minute lecture to a 9-minute lecture. Uh, <laughs> I think your videos typically run around three minutes, uh, the ones that, that I've watched. Is that the sweet spot? Is that modern time where we have moved from writing letters to writing emails to writing text messages? Is it just basically everything gets shorter and faster paced? It's, that's an interesting concept because what we do is we actually can see how people, what people are doing in terms of engaging with the courses and seeing how actively they engage with them, with the courses um, they are over what period of time. 
So we do have courses that are a lot longer than that. I think what we do is we look at the type of consumer that's, that's viewing this type of coursework or classwork, and we're finding that this group of people, uh, and I don't like to refer to it as a generation, but the, 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 this group of people that's consuming this information needs it in bite-sized pieces, and they're also consuming it in a way that's very different than we've traditionally consumed this type of content. So a lot of this is actually being consumed over mobile devices now. Uh, people are looking to access this information on their commute home, um, when they have some downtime during the day. So it needs to be in these bite-sized pieces for people to digest information. But I'm not saying that's typical for all of our courses because we have courses that are much longer than three or nine minutes. It's really just about getting that content abbreviated enough so that people can have access to it in the time that they have, that they can have access to it and be able to, to consume as much as they can in that limited amount of time. And I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of research that we do in terms of figuring what that sweet spot is in terms of time. Um, and I think more needs to be done with that in terms of trying to figure out exactly what type of content needs to be in what type of time frame. So if you're looking at um, up-leveling your skills in the technology aspect versus maybe a soft skill on the business side, it probably is going to require some different time frames. So it might be more specific to the industry in terms of what that sweet spot is. Where will we be in five or ten years from now? I, th I think it's already fascinating to what is happening right now. Any, mm -hmm. uh, any crystal ball, any view for the future? Yes, absolutely. I know exactly where we're going to be in five to fifty. years. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, you know, speaking to clients that are sitting, and I work a lot with our enterprise clients, meaning that they're consuming our our learning platforms across the organization. It's 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 interesting how many players are in this space. Um, last year, I went, or this year actually, a few months ago, I went to the Association for Talent Development. And when I walked into the big room with all the vendors, there were thousands of vendors that are sitting in this space. And what that shows me and others that are sitting here is that it's a really intriguing space to be in right now because when you talk to folks that are sitting in an organization who are trying to make decisions on behalf of what learning means for a large organization, as people, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. What type of platforms do you implement? How do people consume this information? What type of information do they need to consume? And what's the best way for them to be able to do that? So I think we're going to see a lot more players come to the table. If anyone's participating in the event in 2018 for Association of Talent Development, I do expect there to be hundreds of more players that are sitting in the space trying to figure out what's the best way for people to learn. Um, I think it comes down to having a very blended learning environment. That's what I'm seeing works across larger organizations. Um, I'm also seeing that, um, that there needs to be um, more of an emphasis from a top-down organizational level that there is an importance of having a learning, a learning culture across an organization. It's really important, I think, for this generation of people that are sitting, even at the, this new generation of, of folks that are coming in to our organization, they want to learn, and it's really allowing them to have the tools they need, both personal and professional, um, to help them in terms of being better in seat, finding that next opportunity. Uh, so I guess my, my short answer to your question is, this is such an incredibly unknown space right now in terms of what we're doing here in the States and the it opportunity is, yes. affords us uh, abroad. I mean, if we, look at, if we look at Africa, more people... Um, have access to a mobile yeah. device. Thank you. We are in the closing minute. Thank you, Jennifer Neumann. <laughs> Thousands of vendors, a hot industry. That's perfect for our show here. You have been listening to Work Off Tomorrow on Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. Let me thank our sound expert, Dion, and uh, my producer, Matt, for their wonderful support. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tavish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.